we're in the darkest timeline right now and we're going blue. I feel it in the federal and I, I'm going to work so hard to not make that happen. Welcome to episode 17 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory Davis. Yes. So today we're talking about universal basic income and Rory gave us a little lecture a few weeks ago and he's going to give us a quick summary of what you talked about. Absolutely. I don't think I'll be able to summarize the entire lecture that I gave, but maybe just by way of introduction, I'll say a few things about basic income and how it differs from social security that we're used to. So for starters, it takes the idea that the people you're giving aid to are much more trustworthy than what we assume under the current system. And based on that, it's just straight up giving them money, doing away with a lot of the surveillance that uh, permeates our system. And it's taking the eradication of poverty much more seriously by upping the amount of aid that we actually give to recipients. So I think from here on out, we are not going to be calling it basic income. We're going to call it freedom dividends. Freedom dividends. <laughs> so have you heard about freedom dividends? <laughs> I have not. Oh, okay. So uh, the presidential elections in the U.S., there's a candidate. His name is uh, Andrew Yang, mm. and he's promoting uh, UBI uh, as part of his platform. And But the problem that he's encountered is the term UBI. You know, when you go around middle America and you're talking about giving people free money, the problem is you have conservatives who are very against that idea. So uh, he he did a little survey of a broad population of the U.S. to identify keywords that people resonated with. And one of the keywords is obviously freedom. Everyone loves freedom. Especially you, you, the Americans. Exactly. You, you cannot love freedom. <laughs> exactly. So uh, he came up with the concept of freedom dividends, meaning the government will pay you a dividend every month. And so that's his branding. And I think, I think it works pretty well in terms of marketing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it fits really well with the core tenets of basic income, being that you're giving maximum freedom to those who are traditionally denied freedom simply by virtue of how little economic resources they have in order to shape their lives and seek out opportunities. So Freedom Dividends is a very good rebranding, I would say. It's interesting, though, how much um, basic income has been stigmatized and, and that sort of thing, that just changing a few words has actually changed people's perception of what basic income is. Indeed. I, I actually wasn't aware that there was a highly negative stigma around basic income. I know that Plenty of groups, both on the left and the right, have concerns about what basic income could mean in terms of doing away with social programs or keeping social programs, good or bad, depending on which orientation you have. But uh, the negative branding comes as a big surprise to me, to be honest. Mm. I think you've lived in a bubble for a long time. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, negative feedback on UBI. But in the past... Hasn't conservatives actually come up with a similar concept as well? I feel like I've heard in terms of the past, trying to uh, remove social services by providing uh, kind of a basic income for people is kind of following the, the uh, philosophy of some conservatives. Absolutely. Specifically, it's the uh, right-wing libertarians starting as far back as Milton Friedman, possibly even farther back than that who've really embraced the idea of doing away with as much government interference, as they call it, as possible, 
And so the idea of basic income just being a, a flat sum, which keeps people out of abject poverty, but allows a justification to, say, cut public education, cut public health care, cut public funding for virtually every other program, it's highly appealing for the right-wing libertarian group. I think one of the questions that a lot of people will probably have is, obviously, how do you pay for something like this? Um, so I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation, at least for Canada. So, you know, assuming uh, based on Canada's population, uh, about 22 million is within 18 and 65, uh, multiply that by, uh, let's say, $1,000 a month. So that's almost, uh, what is it? It's like two, 200-something, uh, let me look, $270 billion to pay for that. And then... Canada's uh, annual tax revenue is about $300 billion. So how do you pay for something like this? Because essentially, we're, we're dub- we're, we need double the uh, tax income to pay for this. Well, with, uh, with all due respect to the calculations you just provided, there is some research on uh, pegging the cost of a basic income program here in Canada. I'm going to defer a little bit to Professor Evelyn Forge out in Manitoba, who came up with the figure of $76 billion per year for a federal basic income provided to all Canadians aged 18 to 64. This could be where some of your calculations got run askew because you have to consider that we already have old age security and the Canada Child Benefit, which takes care of those two age groups, which are part of the population. So just using raw figures isn't going to get us to the correct figure exactly. And, uh, when you start from that figure of $76 billion, you can actually cut it down quite a bit by accounting for the fact that doing away with welfare as we have it right now can bring the cost down to about $43 billion per year. So and would the concept be with like UBI, you're going to be removing certain services that are in place right now because you have UBI already in place? Absolutely. Certain services and certain tax benefits that exist. Obviously, the money, as you say, has to come from somewhere. But it's the selection of what we do away with that really will determine whether basic income is a good program that actually lifts people out of poverty or whether it's a program that just bait and switches and leaves people no better off. Obviously, we prefer the former. So I think the other uh, potential criticism is you're essentially giving free money to people for no work <laughs> well, my question uh, would be do the rich become richer because of this and the poor don't really get much in benefit to answer that question what i really have to state is there is a a limit to the domain that basic income has an impact on basic income is raising the floor and allowing people to have more disposable income to spend in terms of making the rich richer well that can happen in two ways I know that uh, it can happen through bringing down the amount that employers are paying and skimming more of the profits for themselves in that way. That is one force at play, but you have to consider that if we provide an adequate basic income, it provides an opposite force where the bargaining power falls much more heavily into the hands of prospective workers who can refuse work if the wage offered is too low and the work is too hard. So in terms of making the rich richer, it's going to be a a struggle and a contest 
but at least workers will have you know a spear and shield of their own whereas right now they're much more vulnerable without a basic income to the whims of employers or i'm swapping out employers for the rich i'm choosing to answer it this way if you have another way that the rich could get richer through basic income i'd be curious to learn about that too well i I think one thought around the rich getting richer is, uh, number one, you're providing additional disposable income to people, and obviously corporations may potentially benefit from that, which I'm sure corporations would love. And you're still feeding not a lot of money, but some money to the rich. So maybe one of the questions would be, does it make sense to give everyone a flat UBI, or would it be more effective to redistribute that wealth from the high end down to the low end? As much as possible, of course, we want the rich to pay their fair share, you know, without leveling it off and making it unappealing to pursue wealth entirely. But paying their fair share is obviously a goal, but it's not necessarily a goal that falls solely to basic income. You know, being able to, say, raise the corporate tax is something that has very little to do with basic income, but could have an enormous impact on our capacity to fund basic income. But they're fought in separate political battles, I would say. So it's always going to be a question of what is feasible when you're asking about redistribution. What is politically feasible here in Canada for us to do in terms of taking money from the rich and devoting it to the poor? I highly doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. We do live in a capitalist society, though. So what happens when we do give this UBI and then employers or companies decide they're going to charge more for services or um, different things? Like, can the, the people who are struggling really raise, raise up? It's, it's an interesting question. It's, it's about price control, really. It's about how are we controlling the ability of corporations or businesses in general to just ratchet up the prices and say, taking, for example, if it's a landlord, and the landlord sees that now his tenants are receiving basic income, they have more money, so all of a sudden rent jumps up by $200, and now landlord is much better off, tenants not so much. And you have to consider that we have a whole host of laws, such as rent control laws and price control laws, to help prevent such a tit-for-tat responsiveness between people having more income and that income automatically transferring into the pockets of the people who already have quite a bit of money. So, again, much like labor legislation for employers mistreating workers because they have a basic income you also have to rely on price control and rent control legislation to fight those battles and keep the money in the hands of the people who need it and who are trying to get it into through a basic income do you think we could realistically fight those battles though because every four years our government may change over and so we just got a new government and i heard rumblings of um, rent caps sort of being taken away. The uh, the rumblings you've heard are adjustments to rent control law put forward by the, the Ford government, which allows new units to not have the same rent controls that existing tenants have for their current units. Um, in terms of 
the four-year time span and whether we can accomplish or win any of these political battles within that four-year time span. I think the left needs to be much more active when they do get in, much like the right has been when we see the Ford government, how much they've changed within just a year and a half of their tenure. Yeah, they really took over. They, they decided they were going to put everything in place that they wanted to put in place. So it's it's hard to kind of control any of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it it just it speaks to a need for much more tenacious implementation by the left when they do have power. But since we typically here in Ontario and in Canada at large move between a a progressive conservative government and a liberal centrist government, we don't really have that strong kickback to counterbalance the strong right of the Tories. And so we just find ourselves tipping further and further into right-wing type of policies as we move from liberals who do not so much to the Tories who seem to go at it with a a sledgehammer and change as much as they can when they're in. Yeah, well, uh, doing anything novel and new is always more difficult than going backwards. Um, So going back to, you know, how do you pay for UBI? uh, I know in the U.S., Andrew Yang has talked about adding a value-added tax Mm -hmm. onto anything you buy, essentially, uh, that would pay for UBI. So the topic around like price control, I find it might be difficult. I mean, there's so many things you would need to control. I mean, there's rent, there's uh, uh, various services or labor, et cetera, that uh, could be taxed and things like that. So would a, either a flat tax or maybe even just higher tax brackets uh, kind of potentially pay for UBI? Sure. Progressive tax law is is a great pathway to take if you're able to implement it. What I was just thinking about in terms of the funding and whether it's more viable or less viable to achieve through paying people more, because that's the the counter argument is instead of just giving people free money through basic income, well, why don't we work on raising the minimum wage and pay people more that way? And that was kind of going to be my segue into talking about how precarious job employment has become in recent years and how it's less and less feasible to rely on employment to lift people out of poverty for for certain. And uh, I was trying to come to a point here, but it's kind of eluding me. I'll jump in because I think that this is where your lecture really touched me because I am in a position where I have precarious employment. So I'm a high school teacher, but I only get small contracts here and there and I have to work supply. So I don't always know that there are days of work coming for me. And and then once I hit the summer, I don't have any work. So I don't have that full salaried job. And I haven't for many years. As you know, I have had, you know, three to four jobs that I've worked at one time. There was one time in my life where I was working a long stint of time where I worked four jobs just to pay bills, to pay rent, everything like that. Like, I think that a lot of us are experiencing more precarious work and it's so difficult to get by. Like my wife, she works as a dental hygienist and in dental hygiene, you don't get full time employment. You often get like a Monday uh, every week you would be at one office and then 
you know, two Tuesdays a month, you would be at another office. So it's very hard for people now with the way that we're structuring our employment that people can get full-time um, permanent work. Absolutely. And this is a problem that resonates across a lot of people's minds, whether or not employment figures speak to this in terms of how many jobs are stable jobs that provide security and how many jobs are the precarious sort that you need several in order to make ends meet. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the landscape is changing, right, in terms of jobs, and especially uh, we know, you know, automation, artificial intelligence is coming up. So there is going to be a segment of the population that would be displaced. And I think in your case, Sherry, it's, I mean, the government changes in government can cause job displacement as well. Mm -hmm. So with this changing environment, uh, with certain people being displaced, uh, UBI could be a solution to at least keep people afloat for a period of time while they transition to something else, right? Exactly. It has an enormous strength as a transition period fund where people are seeking to reskill, go back to school, and find out where they fit in a rapidly changing economy. And employers seem to desire this as well. They seem to want a workforce that is very flexible, as they call it. They're able to swap out workers as they need and into different roles as they need. So if they want to be that adaptable for their businesses, then it just makes sense to provide some kind of a basic income to the workers so they can be adaptable too and just find a way that they can help business in the way that they need. Mm -hmm. I think that that would, you know, even if it was just basic income for people transitioning and things like that, like that would, that would make a huge difference in my life where I wouldn't be worried about, okay, I have to go on to unemployment now that it's summertime and then I get half of my original wage and that's not enough to cover my mortgage. Like I had to buy a house and houses are expensive and, you know, you're stuck paying off mortgages. And then what happens when you're you're laid off or your contract is finished and then you know it it causes so many health issues specifically that it's it's so stressful and I think that that would just help so many so many people so much stress and so much anxiety comes from those uncertain periods where you don't have enough resources to do what you need to do just to get by and basic income is one possible solution to that and it was all premised on this idea of doing away with the notion that people don't want to work. That's the reason, one of the main reasons why basic income is fought against is people assume that there will be a mass exodus from the labor force as soon as you give people a way out, essentially. But it's just not the case. People are caught in these transitional periods and they're trying to find out where they fit in the economy and ultimately they still want to work. They just don't always know how immediately but given time, they will find a way to put their labor back into the Canadian workforce. I feel like it would also change the work environment as well, because I think there's a lot of people who feel stuck in these jobs that they don't feel appreciated in or, you know, things are going on that they don't feel comfortable with. And therefore, they can't leave because they have all these bills to pay. So they're kind of stuck where they are and not able to get out. So I think that it would really change how we look at the environments that people are working in because if you have a bunch of people leaving one industry because you know they can leave it now then i think that maybe we need to start looking at that industry and say hey what's going on with that why why are these people leaving what do we need to change about it to 
make it so that people are happier and healthier. Yeah, um, you're talking about the uh, the quintessential bad job that people seem to get stuck in where they're forced to do tasks they wouldn't prefer to do for money that doesn't seem adequate for the work that they're doing. And that's one of the great hopes of basic income is that it would give enough pressure from the worker side that employers who are offering bad jobs would have to perk up those jobs and make them more appealing or those jobs would simply disappear, have to be done by robots or moved overseas, something else. But that uh, an economy backed by a basic income, you wouldn't get away with offering really, really poor jobs for really, really poor wages because people are at a starvation level and they have to take it. Do you think that now every time that the minimum wage goes up, we always hear from small businesses, their their business is going to shut down because they have to pay their workers more. Do you think that if businesses felt pressure to incentivize people to work there, that these small businesses would go under? It's uh, it's an interesting question because small businesses is going to be the most affected by minimum wage increases as well. So they fight against that. Basic income might actually receive less pushback in that regard because it's less of a demanded cost. You're not forcing the small business owner's hand quite as much saying, this is minimum wage law now. You must pay your workers this much. You're still giving them the flexibility to to play the market in their area and say, yes, people have basic income. I have to take that into consideration when I'm posting a new job. It has to be enough to compel someone to work here. But I'm not actually being forced to do anything by labor laws. I'm not forced to pay people more than I possibly could with my minimum wage. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, any business would love the concept of UBI because of the amount of disposable income people now potentially have. That's the other side, absolutely. The purchasing power that we are hoping to see from this group that has traditionally not been able to participate as fully as consumers as we would hope could provide a real infusion to these businesses in terms of just products purchased. Even just like the minimum, the sorry, even just the middle class being able to have a little bit of extra income can go a long way. So um, I remember recently, so between the time that you did your talk and now, I've been thinking about this a lot. And <laughs> one of my coworkers that I'm working with now, she talked about how she got her child tax benefit and put it into uh, her child's uh, fund for university. So every time she got that child tax benefit, she would put it into the fund for university. So essentially she was able to do good with that money she was well off enough that she could afford to do that so you think about the people who are not well off enough and they're able to you know maybe pay for more food or healthier food or something like that whereas somebody else is able to maybe put it back into a government fund or the government's getting you know all of the interest on it so the government's benefiting off it as well so i was thinking about how that it can benefit so many different people, even even if we're thinking about the middle class who maybe aren't struggling, but could use that extra money to, to help benefit other people. For sure. I mean, what we could even talk about at this point is ethical consumerism and people who 
have always wanted to be more ethical consumers, buy the products that contain or generate less waste or buy the products that are healthier for their bodies and are going to not require medical attention later on. These are things that could down the road lead to great cost savings through a basic income program, both for cleaning up our environment and for keeping people healthy and out of our hospitals. So how do you deal with, um, let's call it the bad apples? So when I think about, you know, who's going to benefit from UBI, uh, it's kind of going to be like a bell curve where some people, eh, it's not really going to impact them that much. Uh, it's going to impact quite a lot of people. But then there are the peop- other people from in terms of uh, maybe productivity or willingness to uh, contribute to the community or the economy. They're just going to take that money and do nothing. And they're going to be the uh, showcase of every uh, opponent of UBI as this is why UBI doesn't work. So how do you deal with the uh, the you know one percent on the other end of the spectrum that <laughs> doesn't want to uh, contribute to society? Well, to start, I'll say I am fairly confident that it is a, a very small group who are going to take the the full bad apple route and sit at home, do nothing, or even let's let's take a more extreme example. Say that there's a drug user who is now receiving UBI and they just decide that they can much more sustainably support their drug habit now. I I struggle because I find it distasteful as well to say just let bad apples lie and and let them do their thing because they're certainly not going to be going on cruises or anything. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's a risk if certain social services are no longer funded as much and now you're in a situation where uh, someone has a drug problem, but they no longer have a support there because the, the assumption is where we de- we can decrease the funding for certain supports because everyone now has UBI and they can help themselves, at least the majority of the people. That is a really good point. And it's probably a very good place for me to bring up that we cannot and should not ever consider a universal basic income to be a silver bullet that does everything and cures everything. So programs that do help the the drug user who wants to clean up their life, we really do have to find a way for those to stay in place to the greatest degree possible. I I do want to err on the side of faith in people, though, and say that given the UBI, that maybe a lot of the, the depressing factors that are causing a person to be a ritual drug user, such as feeling they're never going to get ahead in life and that this is it, they might as well just enjoy it on this level, that that might be improved by a confident, stable income that they can rely upon. They can start thinking of ways to better their lives. Maybe it inspires them to to seek out a drug rehab program. It's really hard to predict how exactly it's going to play out and who's going to use basic income to its fullest positive effect and who's going to use it to its fullest negative effect. But I, I'm very confident that there would be a net gain overall. Yeah, I'm, my hypothesis would be there is a net gain, but uh, I do worry about the 1% on the other end where uh, people may not be able to gain from UBI and are potentially not supported by additional services. So, And then the other side of it as well as I suspect uh, potentially anti-UBI people will definitely use this as a example in case of why UBI is failing, right? Yes. 
Yes, and it has to be, uh, we have to be stronger with our rigor in terms of research and, and confidence in the poster child is not demonstrating the actual statistical norm. We have to be able to ignore these extremist cases of look at this person who absolutely wasted their UBI and clearly the program is not working because of them. We can't be swayed by that kind of compelling story so much as we have to rely on statistics and whether it is working as a terms of the mean person. Can, can you remind us kind of what are the statistics around the success of UBI? I know there's been some, I guess, trials of UBI. Have there been, are there countries that are providing some kind of UBI right now? It's a tough question to answer because in a way, as I say, we already have a UBI program in terms of Canada Child Benefit and Old Age Security. So you could look at those programs in terms of reducing the incidence of the elderly who are living in poverty, and you could tout that as an enormous success story for a basic income type of program. Uh, so uh, when it comes to examples of where U- UBI has been implemented, you know, what are the results and uh, has there been you know, success all around or is, or is it still kind of mixed? What, what, what has uh, data shown us? I did a couple things of research into this. Where By it all looks means. At me with like a By all means, Sherry. Face. <laughs> uh, so I read about Finland, um, how Finland put it into place. Uh, I believe it was between 2016, 2017. So they're just compiling data now. Um, and so they only have like preliminary data from that. Um, I also read that there was a town in the 1970s in Manitoba that gave basic income, and they actually saw a decline in doctor visits and the hospitalizations, which is really interesting. Absolutely. What you're referring to there is the, the Manitoba Mincom experiment from Dauphin, Manitoba. You're so impressed with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am very impressed with you. I did research. Because I, too, draw heavily on Evelyn Professor Forger's work from the Dauphin experiment, and you're absolutely right. Hospital visits went down. There was no massive decrease in the amount of people working. In fact, the groups that did reduce their labor force participation were predominantly single mothers and young males who were just on the cusp of finishing high school and decided to finish high school as opposed to immediately joining the labor force to help supply more to the family income. So from the experiments that we've done, not just in people you know, being able to live healthier lives, but their labor force participation, their lack of stress, anxiety, and mental health issues, all net positives from the Dauphin experiment and from what we know so far from the Ontario pilot program that we just recently wrapped up. Can you tell us more about Mincom? Like, um, what were the what were the specifics of that experiment? I'm afraid you may have caught me without a a textbook. I don't know the exact parameters of how much a person receiving income was receiving and how that translates to modern day dollars or was it the full town then that like everybody in that town got basic income that was the idea of income i believe it was the entire 100 percent population of that specific area was receiving it so yeah i i believe that's correct okay 
Yeah, there in the U.S., Alaska also has a similar concept as well because of、uh, all the oil money up there.、Yes. So a portion of that oil profit goes to、uh, the residents of Alaska. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, because、yes. I feel like that's a community that would really need it, especially from isolation and you know wanting people to live there.、Um, yeah, and they have so many mental health. Issues that they grapple with,、um, even just dealing with the fact that there's no sunlight for part、yeah. of the year. Well, it, it's a seasonality of work up there, right? There's、yeah. only certain parts of the year that you can work, or、uh, can, or at least easily work. So,、uh, given in Alaska there is this UBI, it's not a novel concept in North America. And of、yeah. course, you there are other examples from all these other experiments as well. I'm really glad you you brought that up. The Alaska Permanent Fund, which, as you say, exists off of the the profits that they make from from their oil revenues. The Alaska Permanent Fund is fiercely defended by the Alaskan citizenry. That they are very very much in favor of that program, particular program, and it also brings up hearkening back to how do we fund basic income. Not all places are probably going to have a rich natural resource the way that Alaska has that they can rely on that to fund the the basic income program. But if there's some way that we could take that model of the permanent fund and apply it to different circumstances or different kinds of resources in territories like Ontario or other provinces in Canada, it could be a real head start in terms of funding basic income. I know a place that has a lot of oil. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> I don't think、uh, Albertans will share, want to share that money, though. Not with their new leadership. Well, share it to what degree? They may not want to to share it with all of Canada. But if if Albertans were to be offered a basic income as a product of the oil revenue generated in their province, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find an Albertan who would be. Upset about that idea. Yeah. Do you think it's better than to have it province by province doing their own basic income, or do you think it's better to have a federally regulated one? Boy, that is a that is a deep question because I can. I know you can't tell the future or anything, but <laughs> I can refer to how successful healthcare has been as a a federally provided program across all provinces in Canada and. It feels like that would be the gold standard that you would want UBI to be federally generated, even though right now the provinces are mostly responsible for social security programs, province by province. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to say because I can see positives and negatives on both sides, especially、yeah. if you have a province like Alberta that could readily generate a basic income program using the Alaska model, versus somewhere else that it, it seems. Distant and difficult, and it might require federal intervention in order to get them a basic income program. Yeah, it's kind of almost like the the rich helping the poor kind of thing. This wage, or not wage, this money and economic distribution versus you know one province doing really well and getting this great UBI, and then you know another province like I don't know, like.、Um, Saskatchewan, maybe who doesn't have quite as many resources to pull from, 
that mm. would struggle to import maritime this. provinces and maritime provinces for sure. Uh, I can see some issues with having different UBIs per province. Then you're going to get essentially people migrating <laughs> to where the, there's highest UBI. I don't right? know if that's really a concern though, because Alberta had a whole bunch of people migrate to Alberta because of the, uh, the it's oil not, I don't think it's a concern industry. for Alberta. I, I no, think saying... about the other provinces that are losing people because you're essentially losing your tax base uh, to another mm. province. So I, I, think the, I think the other provinces might have an issue. I don't think enough people would migrate away, though, because like when we saw Alberta booming with their industry, not like people did migrate, but not in the you know, in the epic amounts of people. It, it was a very, you know, concentrated group because people mostly want to stay where they are. People have purchased houses or they have family and friends around them, right? So I don't know that we would really see that migration. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't have a crystal ball either to know yeah. whether attachment would be strong enough to to fight off the economic incentive of finding the best rational economic circumstances that you possibly could through UBI and tax structure. I don't know. Well, I mean, the the, the migration to Alberta, the, there are some barriers because you still, just moving to Alberta doesn't guarantee you a job and income. Whereas if, with UBI in place, I think the moment you step foot <laughs> in the province and register, you know, a driver's license and you get this instant money, it probably creates a little bit more of an incentive for people to make that move because there's there's the risk is a lot lower than what the risk is right now, right? Yeah, you make a good point. It is a good point. It it actually harkens back to a case I read from Alaska because Alaska does uh, take the the idea of citizenry very seriously in terms of qualifying to receive their. A piece of their permanent oh, really? fund. How, how do they qualify people then? I believe, and this will probably be totally wrong and <laughs> easily discounted, but I think you have to live in Alaska for a year and a half, live mm. and be working in Alaska. Yeah. Maybe not be working. Oh. <laughs> but you have <laughs> to live, live in Alaska for a year and a half, I'm pretty sure, at least mm -hmm. to qualify for their, their permanent fund. And so that might be one way to combat the migration problem if we're going mm -hmm. to to coin it that is have some kind of citizenry qualification criteria where you have to have been a resident of the province for x number of months x number of years yeah you know they, they can also build a wall if they wanted to so. <laughs> do you think that would discourage people though like if that's where the work is like if if their jobs are shutting down let's say in ontario um and becoming automated and and going to all these ai systems that we learned about <laughs> if if that's happening and the work is is then available for them in alberta but getting there is an issue and having so like having that basic income available for them when they get there would be a real incentive to go where the work is absolutely that's the the counterbalancing point is you don't want to we're talking about creating a disincentive for migration but on the other side, you don't want to create a disincentive for migration if you want people working in that area. If you favor migration to Alberta so that they can boost up the economy because that's where all the opportunity is, you don't want to disincentivize that by saying, well, too bad you're going to sacrifice your basic income for the next year and a half or so. So, yeah, lots of small nuanced 
battles like that are going to have to be figured out to find the best balance to have optimal migration. For me, the more migration you have, you just have a higher tax base coming to you. That's mm-hmm. that's what if I were to cover it, that's what I would be thinking about. <laughs> I want that money. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Do you do you realistically see basic income becoming a part of our society at any, any point? I know we're coming up on a federal election, but and and we have seen some politicians in the US talking about freedom dividends. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming up with these basic income strategies, do we see it happening in Canada? I, I mean, in my gut, I know we're we're in the darkest timeline right now, and we're going <laughs> blue. I feel it in the federal, and I, I'm going to work so hard to not make that happen. But so I think the government kind of is changing here, but in in maybe even the distant distant future, can we see that as part of Canada? Do you think that's going to happen? I think that the longer basic income remains in the public consciousness and the longer that politicians such as Andrew Yang are are taking it seriously and making it part of their platforms, I think that increases the likelihood that we will see basic income actually implemented somewhere in Canada or the U.S. in the future. So that's really where the the task of the activists comes in and of social media, whatever outlets they're able to keep the flame of basic income alive. So long as it doesn't disappear, I think worse economic circumstances are also something that could drive people into team basic income. So as long as it's there, always, even if it's in the background, as long as it doesn't disappear entirely, then yeah. I see it as a distinct possibility that it could be something people turn to for a popular platform. Yeah, I think as economies start to change, uh, there's probably going to be more conversations around UBI. But I highly doubt this is going to be a platform for the next election. It requires a sympathetic government and one that the, the I think it, it government needs, is not. It needs people to support it as well. I mean, if you talk to the average Joe, right? they're not going to really understand the benefits of UBI. Uh, and especially as people who are against UBI start to talk about the cons of UBI in terms of tax, uh, raising taxes and uh, maybe new value-added taxes or whatever that that might be to fund UBI, it's going to be a sticking point in any election. Mm-hmm. But I, I think as the conversation continues... Uh, it'll start creeping into people's mindset what UBI is and and what are the benefits and how they can potentially see it benefit them, especially as economy the economy starts to shift into uh, new areas. Yeah. I wish I could say that the the persistent myths about basic income, such as the mass work disincentive, could be dispelled just through scholarly research. But that over the last 30, 40 years, it's been proven that we can generate as many findings and different research projects as we want about the success of basic income and it hasn't swayed popular opinion whether those results aren't being disseminated properly through our media outlets i don't know well people people make their decisions out of emotions and not facts so i think there needs to be a tie-in with you know ubi uh supporting the economy or helping uh 
uh, either helping your own net worth, like whatever mm -hmm. that messaging is, like it's got to hit people at a more emotional level and not uh, um, some scholarly paper that they will never understand. And that's why I really liked that photo series that you showed us because you're actually looking at people. And I feel like there's sometimes this disconnect, uh, this cognitive dissonance when we're thinking about these low-income people because you know, you're know you not one or whatever. It's just these this concept of a low-income person versus these pictures where you can see these these families that were benefiting or um, you know an older woman who wanted a... A walker. A walker, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, and, and credit once again to Jesse Gollum who created that photo series in Hamilton that I showed a small part of. Yeah, very human stories like that definitely are something that can change people's minds and turn them from a basic income dissenter into a basic income believer because the archetype that they're holding in their consciousness of the, the lazy layabout who's good for absolutely nothing and I would feel sick to my stomach funding him falls apart a little bit when they recognize the, the single mother who's struggling with two part-time jobs to support her two children and pay for daycare through some kind of impossible calculus. Real stories like that absolutely humanize the basic income recipient as someone who's not a foul demon who needs to be rejected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you got to add a little bit more emotion in it. So you got to call it the freedom dividends with the Canadian flag in the background and a beaver on their shoulder. So. I appreciate that. I'll it start using <laughs> freedom dividend if that has the, the positive branding. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I, I just think it can impact so many people. Like I know I'm putting off having a baby because I can't afford it. I can't afford mortgage. I can't afford the instability of my job. And I think we would see maybe a rise in in birth rates to help our population a little bit not huge or anything we're not talking huge but you're I, gonna do your part yeah <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> i'm only having one let's be honest here <laughs> but it's not even I, replacement <laughs> sherry <laughs> i know exactly. but, but without but without the ubi maybe i wouldn't have i wouldn't have any yeah right and then and then you're I think that's why we're we're allowing a lot of immigrants to come into Canada because our birth rate is not quite what it is, right? So, and also the decline on our our health system. So people are using the health system less because they're feeling less stress and all of that stuff. So you're you're not you don't have that taxing uh, force on that healthcare system as well. I think there are so many different benefits. I read an article um, on Vox. It was a nice little clickbaity article um, titled Meet the Canadian Doctor Who Prescribes Money to Low-Income ah, Patients. Yes. Did you read this one? I saw the headline. <laughs> I did not read it. It's very clickbaity, but it's, it's, got, it's worthwhile because there is a doctor who did this TED Talk and talks about how his patients, his low-income patients, he believes that he has, um, he, he has to help them in a way uh, to get out of poverty because it helps their health, like he's helping mm -hmm. the whole person. So he uh, has them filling out, um, you know, uh, tax forms and disability benefits and stuff like that so that they can access these benefits. And then he sees them less. Um, so so those people are not going to the doctor quite as much. It's very it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. No, he's he's definitely onto something. And it, it almost becomes a question of where do you want to treat the maladies? Do you want to prevent them and give people the supports they need to never get sick to that point in the first place or do you want to wait until 
they're sick from stress or sick from overwork or whatever be it that brings them to the doctor and treat them at that point yeah it's always cheaper to prevent i mean it's study after study it's always cheaper to prevent any illness yeah um in the article he said that if you don't treat the social determinants of health like income and housing you're not doing what you can to ensure your patients get healthier um and it's like you know you have to think about the what is it the bloom's taxonomy that triangle pyramid thing where if you're not satisfying your physical needs first Mm -hmm. then you can't actually satisfy your other needs you're Mm -hmm. you're always focused on you know do i have shelter do i have food and and that's no way to live that's no way for a human being to live and we shouldn't expect other humans to live that way there there could be a lot of community engagement benefits when people have as you were mentioning your bloom's taxonomy that base level of survival needs housing food once those types of needs are met, maybe they can become more actively engaged community participants and and do more just to create a more socially cohesive or social solidarity within our communities. And that's such a humanist principle as well, of wanting to help others and, and do good in mm-hmm. the world. So we should all be behind basic income. It could give a real stimulus to your, your humanist agenda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you worked that podcast name in really well. <laughs> good for you. You're so good, good job. at podcasting. <laughs> I wish I thought of that. <laughs> I know. Kenny's really jealous now. We're replacing you, Kenny. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> uh, well. This was fun. <laughs> I'm so glad that you were able to be here, Roy. It's it's wonderful that you were able to give a talk for us and enlighten My us at at the actual meeting and then you were able to come back and, and discuss it more in depth with us. Very happy to to participate in this and to inform people about the benefits of basic income wherever and however I can. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rory, for joining us uh, to talk about the freedom dividend. And uh, do, you, do we have any announcements? Our next meeting is going to be talking about climate change at the local level. So we're really excited for that. If you weren't able to make it, we'll we'll have the recording out soon. We we have lots coming up uh, shortly. We have our picnic coming up, and we have our Pride Parade march coming up. So stay tuned for those. We'll have more t- details in the future. Is anyone else getting married on the Pride Parade? <laughs> no, no, unfortunately, I can't convince anyone. <laughs> I've tried so hard. <laughs> no, I get to be special. And I'll be celebrating my one-year anniversary. It'll be exciting. Yay. (laughs) Well, I guess that's it. So we'll wrap up. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll check you guys out later. Bye. 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 Oh, my goodness. Have I been quiet the whole time with the microphone in the wrong place? (laughs)